30 years of Hubble Views. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. For the last three decades, the Hubble Space Telescope has peered deep into our universe, exploring the origins of the cosmos and capturing stunning views of stars, clusters, and galaxies. Now, NASA is releasing a catalog of some of its most dazzling images, some you can see yourself from your own backyard. We'll talk with NASA Hubble senior project scientist Dr. Jennifer Wiseman about Hubble's history and how the orbiting observatory will help future telescopes explore even more of our universe. But Hubble was almost hobbled by a problem with its main mirror. Those crystal clear shots of deep space would have been fuzzy, but for the crew of dedicated spacewalkers and talented engineers who fixed the scope from space. We'll revisit a conversation with retired NASA astronaut Story Musgrave about the effort to fix Hubble and the delicate dance of spacewalks. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on America's Space Station. Earlier this year, Hubble turned 30, double the planned mission duration. To celebrate this milestone, NASA released a new collection of images, 30 celestial sites in celebration of its three decades of service. Some of these never-before-released images are things amateur astronomers can see from their own backyard. To talk about this collection of star clusters, nebula, and galaxies, and Hubble's lasting legacy, is Dr. Jennifer Wiseman. She's a senior project scientist for NASA's Hubble, Dr. Wiseman, thanks for speaking with us. My pleasure. So NASA is releasing a new collection of images from Hubble that feature 30 objects in the night sky. Um, tell us a little bit about these images that are coming out and, and why they're so interesting. Well, these images are uh, are images that you can find in a special catalog called the Caldwell Catalog. This is a catalog that's popular with amateur astronomers where you can actually look with your own telescope or sometimes even with your own eyes or binoculars and find them. These are a collection of galaxies or nebulas and star clusters, but we've looked at them with Hubble to get that very crisp view that Hubble can see. And we're releasing 30 uh, images of 30 of these objects um, in celebration, really, of Hubble's 30th anniversary of the observatory. I always find every Hubble image just absolutely beautiful. So I'm very excited about seeing these that are coming out. But the process of collecting these images is 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 fascinating to me. Um, and I'm wondering if you could bring our listeners up to speed in, in how you capture these um, what what does Hubble do on its end, and then what kind of processing is done uh, down here on Earth to just give you these spectacular images? That's a great question. So uh, um, the Hubble Space Telescope is really a satellite. It's in orbit around the Earth. It's in space, not to get it much closer to the things we're observing, but to get it above the Earth's atmosphere so we don't have to look through all the blurring effects of the Earth's atmosphere and the Earth's atmosphere even even filters out some of the light that we're interested in seeing. So that's why we have a telescope on a space-based platform. But of course, it makes it harder to access. It's not easy to get up to the Hubble, although we've had several astronaut servicing missions to Hubble 
uh, over the years to improve it and to repair things and put in new cameras and things. So that's kept Hubble in tip top shape. But normally to get the observations from Hubble, we have to transmit commands from the ground up to the telescope to tell it where to point. Hubble's got some very good gyroscopes and other equipment to keep it pointed precisely where we want it to look and to record the data. Hubble has a whole suite of science instruments on board, cameras and spectrographs, and we choose the one that's the best fit for what we're trying to study. Hubble records those observations and then transmits the data back down to the ground where receivers on the ground uh, receive it. It's transmitted then to processing facilities, uh, computers that will do some of the preliminary uh, processing, image processing and calibration of the data. And then uh, the data goes to the astronomers who have proposed the, the observations to analyze, to answer the kinds of questions they want to answer with it. And it ends up also in an archive that's publicly available. The nicer pictures we also put uh, in easily accessible galleries um, so that uh, you and I can enjoy seeing them anytime we like. So there's a whole process there uh, that takes a while uh, from the, the conception of an observation and proposing it to actually getting the data back down. Uh, but it's very efficient. Hubble's done well over a million observations in its 30 years of of, of observing so far. And you can find out and see a lot of these images yourself uh, if you go to our Hubble website, nasa.gov slash Hubble, um, or the gallery at hubblesite.org and see a lot of these pictures. But today's pictures that we're releasing of these Caldwell objects, uh, you can find at uh, nasa.gov slash Hubble. Over a million observations. That's like mind boggling to me. So it's, it's done this process over a million times with so many of those images, what's left to look at? <laughs> what, what is Hubble still looking at? There's a whole lot. So, so uh, as with any terrific scientific uh, an, uh, instrument or investigation, it opens up new questions. So it answers a lot of questions, but opens up even more questions. And that's great. That's what we want. When Hubble was first uh, conceived of decades ago, uh, their questions that we wanted to address with a space telescope included things like, you know, how fast is the universe expanding or what is actually going on in this, the interstellar medium where new stars are forming. So Hubble has told us uh, many new things. It's really changed our understanding of the entire universe and our place in it and how the universe has changed over time through its spectacular sensitive images but it's also opened up new doors of inquiry. We didn't know, for example, when Hubble was first designed that there were actually planets orbiting other stars. You know, we have the planets in our own solar system orbiting the sun, like our Earth, but we didn't know, or at least we hadn't uh, discovered planets orbiting other stars. We thought they might be there, but they're just, they're just too tough to observe. Well, since Hubble's launched, uh, thousands of these exoplanetary systems have been discovered, not with Hubble, but with other telescopes designed for that. But what Hubble is doing, and really was the pioneer in this, is studying those discovered exoplanets to find out the compositions of their atmospheres, to see what's, what's in the atmospheres of these planets outside our solar system. Are they anything like the planets in our own solar system? That's one area where Hubble is, is really active right now. Another is at a much vaster scale, looking at the universe as a whole. You know, Hubble is very sensitive, so it can see faint, faint galaxies, which really enables us to see 
very far away in space. And of course, since it takes time for light to get to us, that's like looking very far back in time because it's taken millions and sometimes billions of years for the light to get to us from these very distant faint galaxies. So Hubble is teaching us a lot about the early universe and how galaxies uh, first formed, um, what they looked like, uh, um, and we're also being able to measure more precisely that expansion rate of the universe, which surprisingly enough is getting faster. Hubble uh, to our surprise, a few years ago, contributed to a surprise discovery that the universe is not only expanding, which Edwin Hubble uh, discovered himself, but that that expansion is getting faster. It's accelerating. It's being pushed apart by something we call dark energy because we don't know what it is, uh, but we're studying it. And Hubble is helping us a lot with studying uh, these not well understood phenomena, such as as, as dark energy as well as dark matter. All these fascinating discoveries, and, and I love the tidbit about how, you know, Hubble's up there before the discovery of exoplanets, and now it's helping, you know, uh, confirm and, and find out what these planets are possibly made of. It gives, it's a testament to the lifespan of Hubble, which was designed to last 15 years. Uh, but as you mentioned, there's been some upgrades with some um, some servicing missions. Now it's 30 years strong, um, I mean, what's next for this telescope? Is is it going to stay up there and, and continue to help scientists down here answer those those big questions? Yes. Yeah, so Hubble is uh, thankfully in in very good technical condition right now, even though it's been operating for thirty years. And the reason for that is is twofold. First, is that we had these the series of astronaut missions over the years going up to Hubble on the space shuttle. And enabling us both to repair equipment when when we needed repairs and also to uh, replace some of the cameras and instruments with upgraded newer science cameras and and instruments like spectrographs. So that's kept Hubble uh, in the really uh, peak of scientific capability. And then the second aspect is that we have a, a wonderful team of experts on the ground who, even though we can't really get our hands on Hubble anymore, Um, the way we used to with the space shuttle, they're able to uh, um, send commands and to to monitor the health and and even come up with creative ways of using the uh, instruments on Hubble such that we can uh, continue to get the best science out of Hubble and even tweak more years out of its controlling uh, infrastructure like gyroscopes and things, even just from commands from the ground. So because of that, and also innovative uses of Hubble for innovative observations, we're getting the best science out of Hubble now than we ever have in its 30 years before. And we expect, you know, unless something unexpected happens, we expect that Hubble's going to continue to be scientifically productive for quite a few years to come. Now, this is great for science because it can continue to address a lot of these questions we have, uh, not only about distant galaxies, but also observing the activity in our own solar system as as we observe the planets and the weather changing on planets and things in our own solar system. But we also look forward to coordinated observations or complementary, I should say, between Hubble and other observatories like the James Webb Space Telescope, which is due to launch in the latter part of next year. 
it's going to be a really uh, superb observatory for infrared light observations. It will see much deeper into the infrared part of the spectrum of light than Hubble can see. But then Hubble will see visible and ultraviolet light in a way that the Webb telescope cannot see. So having both of these facilities operating at the same time for quite a few years, we hope, will really open new understanding for us, especially of, of galaxies in the very distant early universe, and also closer to home, these hidden regions where stars and planets are still forming in dense dust clouds. So uh, complementary observations of Hubble with other telescopes and probes are something that we're really excited about in the coming years. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is with James Webb coming online, what will the relationship be between Hubble and James Webb, and it sounds like it will be complementary. Has there ever been a, a system like this in place where you could have a space-based uh, visible light and a, a space-based infrared light working hand-in-hand to look deep into the universe? Yes, we have. Um, the Spitzer Space Telescope is just a phenomenal infrared space telescope that um, recently ended its mission, but it it has already begun to open our eyes, if you will, to uh, the infrared uh, uh, mystique of the universe in ways that have complemented Hubble already. So we already have a taste of what we're going to get even better with the Webb telescope. And we also use Hubble um, with complement with other wavelength observatories. The Chandra X-ray Observatory, for example, is, is also a space telescope. It's very active right now. And it sees the higher energy radiation from the centers of galaxies where supermassive black holes lurk and create a lot of uh, hot energetic emission. Um, it sees the, 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 the signs of exploding stars, supernovas, we call them, and Hubble observations can complement that. We also use Hubble in complement with observatories on the ground. There are still uh, things that telescopes on the ground uh, can do that are unique capabilities that complement what space telescopes can do. So um, we are uh, really excited about these very giant uh, professional ground-based observatories that are being constructed in this decade. And we're already working in complement with the ground-based telescopes that are already operating, such as, for example, the ALMA uh, um, radio and submillimeter wavelength array in South America. It's really a superb observatory at wavelengths of light that Hubble cannot reach. And so we, we use these things in complement. And, and then let me just add one of my favorite ways of using Hubble in complement with other uh, observatories is with with probes. Actually, we we coordinate as much as we can with these nifty uh, probes that are sent out in our own solar system to study things like uh, Jupiter um, or Pluto. Um, the, the New Horizons mission that went to Pluto in recent years, uh, its its course was kind of mapped out ahead of time because of Hubble looking at the Pluto system ahead of time and finding even previously undiscovered moons in that system that the New Horizons probe could learn from and chart its course based on this information from Hubble. And right now we're coordinating with the Juno probe, which is at Jupiter. Juno is orbiting in the Jupiter system right now. It's measuring Jupiter's gravitational and magnetic fields. Hubble from a distance can look at Jupiter 
and see the planet as a whole, both in visible light and also in ultraviolet light, which tells you something about the northern lights and the magnetic fields around Jupiter. And we're complementing the information from Hubble and Juno to give us more knowledge of Jupiter than we would have had with either observatory or probe alone. Finally, Dr. Wiseman, I want to go back to that anniversary collection um, that's being released. Uh, you mentioned at the start of our conversation that some of these objects can be seen from our own backyard with, with temperatures cooling, at least here uh, where I am, and, and skies clearing. That's very exciting to find out that we can see these with our own eyes. Um, kind of point us in the right direction. How, how can we see these things at home? Sure. So these are, again, these the images that are being released now uh, taken with Hubble are of 30 objects uh, that are part of a bigger catalog of objects called the Caldwell Catalog of galaxies, nebulas, star clusters. These are bright objects. So you can see the Hubble images at our website, nasa.gov Hubble. But if you look there, you'll also find for each one of these objects, a, a, a star chart that kind of tells you where you can see them in the sky. And some of them are... Um, bright enough that if you're in a dark place, you can try to find them with your own telescope, or if you're in a really dark place, maybe even good binoculars. There's a couple that can even be seen with the naked eye if you're in a dark place. So you can look on the website, find out where these different objects are. Some of them are, are visible in the southern hemisphere, some of them visible in the northern hemisphere, and see if you can find them uh, yourself. So, but uh, you can certainly see Hubble spectacular images um, on the website, and they're just beautiful. So, I hope everyone will look, check them out, and enjoy them. We're releasing the 30 images in, in commemoration of Hubble's 30th birthday this year. Wonderful. Well, I will definitely look up um, this month. We've been speaking with NASA Hubble senior project scientist, Dr. Jennifer Wiseman. Uh, thank you so much for speaking with us. My pleasure. You can find all of Hubble's images online at nasa.gov slash Hubble, especially those Caldwell objects that Dr. Weissman was talking about on nasa.gov slash Hubble. If you are an amateur astronomer and you happen to catch a shot of one of these objects, be sure to share it with me. We'll share it on our social media accounts. You can tweet me at SpaceBrendan or shoot me an email at AreWeThereYet at WMFE.org. And while I've got you here, I need your help on a future episode later this month. We're going to be looking back at the top space news stories of 2020. So what do you think should be highlighted in a roundup of all the exciting space news that happened this year? Was it the launch of humans or was it the launch to Mars? Let me know. Send me an email. Are we there yet at WMFE.org? Shoot me a tweet at SpaceBrendan. Or you can leave a message on our Facebook page and search for Are We There Yet? Podcast. Still to come, the effort to save Hubble and the delicate dance of spacewalking. That's ahead when Are We There Yet? continues here on America's Space Station. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. Shortly after the Hubble Space Telescope was deployed back in 1990, NASA discovered a flaw. An issue on the observatory's main mirror caused blurry images. Luckily, Hubble was designed for in-orbit servicing, and the space shuttle could visit and make the repairs. 
The first of those repair missions began in 1993, and one of the astronauts tasked with helping Hubble see was Story Musgrave. I spoke with Musgrave back in 2018 about the work that goes into such an intricate spacewalk and how he prepared to fly on the mission. You're looking at what you got to do to get to the finish line, what you got to do to put this system back in place, to recover the whole system. Of course, how along the way, I got those procedures down. We created very firm procedures and created the tools to get the job done. And so we tested all that stuff. So when we went to go and do that. We weren't creating anything. We had that plan. You have to get the plan down. You can't create stuff real time. You don't want to. You don't want to have to. Now, let me let me ask you about that mission um, to service Hubble there. I mean, that was a super important mission for this multi-billion dollar project. Um, and, you know, you're, you and your team single-handedly gave us the eyes to the depths of the universe. What's it like when you see those Hubble images come back and know that you had a hand in making those images that are so influential to people and so influential in getting the public interested in space. Well, it's a sense of humility and that I've been trying to survive my whole life. And so it's, it's thankful. It's thankful for the, the destinies that I was allowed to finish the job. So I've been on this playing fields for however many decades where I have to get the job done. And I know I can't be stopped. And so I'm part of team. It's always part of a team, of course, like Mission Control, love and adore them endlessly. And so, but it's a sense of thankfulness that we did look at the details and we did not get surprised. So the team was penetrating enough in its futuristic-looking forensic to look at things and, and identify problems before they happened. And that's what allowed us to get the job done. We had enough imagination to see what could happen and we plan for that ahead of time so that once we got there, we are doing a plan that we have rehearsed. Now, you are just one of just a handful of people that have had the unique perspective of walking in space. Can you tell me about that first moment you you left the airlock and, and you're in your spacesuit And what was that view like? What did it feel like? Well, I was doing the dance. And of course, I did challenge her. I was the first, uh, first spacewalker in the whole shuttle program. I was the first person to go out the door in the entire shuttle program because I had helped design the suits. As a physician, as someone that, and a mechanic, how you get work done, me and the team designed the space suits that we use on the shuttle and we use on Space Station today. Now, those suits were designed by me and the team. So that's why I got to go out and uh, test those things. And so, but of course... Um, in my imagination and other, all kinds of other things, I was into um, the freefall condition, the zero gravity. I have been in suits for thousands upon thousands of hours, and so it's, it's do the dance. It's Dorothy Hamill, the music starts, what you're going to do. That's what it's all about. <laughs> and I'm not being compulsive. I am not compulsive. It's the dance, and I love the dance. Okay, here we go. Here's the dance. And so... It's the beauty of the dance, too. And so I am an athlete, and I brought athleticism to the spacewalking world. But what's it like? It's like for Dorothy Hamill when the music starts. You know Dorothy Hamill. Mm-hmm, yeah. Or Peggy Fleming, the graceful ones. What is it like for me, sir? It's when the music starts. That's what it's like for me. You know, Not in a compulsive way. The beauty. The beauty of the dance and the plan that you laid out. 
I'm a great ballerina, but the ballerina is not out there inventing what she's going to do. She has perfected that along the way, and now it is the pleasure of pulling that off when it matters. The pleasure. Did you get a moment to, to take that, that pleasure in? When, every when, minute. Uh, every move you make, you're saying, my goodness, I got this one. The move I designed ahead of time, my goodness, it's working. And ain't that beautiful. <laughs> That's probably reassuring, too, right? Yeah, well, you do wonder. And so you're always studying. You're always looking as you're doing the dance out there. Did you nail it in your imagination? Because they don't have a simulator. Mm-hmm. There is no simulator for space walking. We do the water. Now, the water is good for Newton's third. It's action and reaction. You put some force on some object, that force has come back into your body. You push on some 30 pounds, your body going backwards 30 pounds. Water's good for that. Water's not good for how your suit is going to work. It's not good at all. If I go upside down the water tank, I got 150 pounds on my collarbones because I am, you know, resting on my collarbones inside the suit. The water is not zero G. It's neutral buoyant. So we don't have a simulator. So you, you grab all the analog devices they've given you to build, to build in your imagination what this walk is going to be all about. And then you're out there and you're seeing that the imagination was correct. Mm-hmm. Story, there's something that you keep bringing up in our conversation here. You keep saying imagination. And I'm wondering if as a kid, you know, you were a daydreamer as an adult. Are you still a daydreamer? And do you think that, that people use their imagination enough now? I mean, everything that you've do, yeah. you do, you say you're using your imagination. Is there a loss of that? As a kid, I had, kid, I had massive imagination. I had massive imagination because... I suppose I was making up for the lack of real world, except, you know, um, I was in a forest alone at night at age three. Now, that's imagination, man. Mm-hmm. You, you're wondering what's there, what's going to happen. But but you're totally at home with the spirits that are there. You're totally at home. You know the forest is your kind of place, and you know you're at total peace with whatever is there, and it's absolutely nothing. Gonna, this is age three, sir. Mm-hmm. This is age three in a forest alone at night. Wow. And being totally at home with that situation. And also, I built my own rafts at age five. I went down the river at age five. My own home-built raft at age five. And so, you know, I did have some narrowness, and I had some restrictions on, on what I could hope for. But, man, I was an explorer, and I had 500 acres to explore on. Wow. So I did have that. Story Musgrave, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Okay, sir. There's more of that conversation in our archives. Be sure to visit wmfe.org slash are we there yet for a link to that episode. We also spoke with Mike Massimino earlier this year about his work on Hubble from Space. I'll be sure to link that conversation as well. That's going to do it for this week's show. Stay connected online. Visit wmfe.org slash space or give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram. We're at A-W-T-Y space. On Facebook, just search for Are We There Yet podcast, or you can shoot me an email, yet at wmfe.org. And be sure to subscribe to this show's podcast feed if you're not already. You can get it on NPR One, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to check out another podcast from WMFE. My colleague Amy Green dives into the efforts to restore the Everglades in her new podcast called Drained. Get that wherever you get this show. Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. The show's intern is Nellie Ontiveros. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.